everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with Common Stock founder and CEO, David McDonough. David in some ways is the poster child of the retail investor movement. A former college athlete who didn't know a lick about investing, then embarked on a journey over the last decade to teach himself everything he could about finance, turning this interest into a lifelong passion. Sensing a major hole in the retail community, David built Common Stock, a social network that amplifies the knowledge of the best investors out there with verifiable track records of investments, by percentage of course. The idea has attracted investors such as Social Capital, Floodgate, and Wharton FinTech favorite Frank Rotman of QED. Today, we dive into his authentic journey to founding Common Stock and why he was the Rudy of private equity the awesome common stock community, its network effects, and growth. The Robinhood and GameStop fiasco and how learning Robinhood's business was like seeing the green binary codes from the matrix. And a rapid fire round with some of his amazing stock successes, and of course some misses caused by his paper hands. I came in a little skeptical on common stock, but left a real believer in the business. Let's get started. David, welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. It's great to have you on the show today and probably no better timing to talk about an investing style FinTech app than right now. Yeah, likewise. Couldn't be more excited to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Great. So to start, where have you been quarantining and uh, building from the last year or so? So I am in San Francisco. As I was saying, the, the apocalyptic hellscape is overblown. It's actually pretty delightful. It was 70 degrees here this past weekend. And our company is headquartered here in San Francisco. That's great. And uh, just had the mayor of Miami on a few weeks ago. He's putting on the hard sell on Miami. He had me pretty convinced, but good to know that SF is not as bad as everybody's <laughs> making it out to be. It is a disaster, according to Twitter. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's fantastic. And I actually am a huge fan of Miami and what they're doing down there. I actually, mm-hmm. one of the things that's been remarkable not to go too far down this rabbit hole, is the ability to hire all over the place. Our team has expanded to all over the country. so That's awesome. And we'll get to this later, but just one quick follow-up. Is your team all remote? Has it always been remote? Do you have an office space right now in SF that you're holding? We do have an office space in SF. We are probably half and half right now. We have, uh, we're still a very small team, under 20 people, but I spent a month building this beautiful office myself next to the Transamerica building two years ago, and then six months in, COVID hit. So hopefully someday we get to go back to that. We, the vast majority of the team are based in San Francisco, but we've been able to hire amazingly talented people since COVID all over the country. So it's, I think we will return to a hybrid model where people are half remote, and then we fly together somewhere once a quarter for two weeks so we get the in-person time. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, for those that can't see, the office is absolutely beautiful. We've got a big curved screen of CNBC in the background, a perched up laptop. He's covering the dead plant with his head, <laughs> but there's another beautiful plant, well watered. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> so taking a look at your background, I see playing squash at you know one of the top squash programs in the world at Trinity, some time on the pro circuit, some investment work, Google. Where did this idea for common stock come about? Yeah, I think this is a good segue into the origin story because it's very circuitous and I would say random, the sequence of events that led to this moment. Rewinding back to the beginning, I grew up in DC on Capitol Hill, basically right across the street from the Capitol. My parents were 
in government and politics. And I went to school in Connecticut, a school called Trinity College that had a great squash team. I graduated from there in 2008 into the financial crisis. Originally, I was planning on going to medical school. Uh, I was pre-med and my parents decided to, my dad actually went to Wharton. My parents said, you should take a year off before you go to medical school to save some money, but also just sort of explore. And so after graduating, while all of my friends went to Lehman and Bear Stearns, I went to play squash as a pro in Connecticut and New York. Um, and, you know, just kind of have some fun before entering the real world. And as the world collapsed around us, the financial crisis developed, these other squash pros and I, and by the way, the, sort of, the squash pros that I was working with and my teammates at Trinity were all people from all different walks of life, all different countries. None of us really had this, were ushered into the finance world. And so we would meet in the pro shop of these country clubs and say, hey, we got to figure out investing. We have to figure out personal finance. And that was the genesis. So it was my friend, Greg MacArthur and I in the pro shop, we got each trade cards. We started this miniature investment club with some of the other squash and tennis pros. It was called Team America Recession Police or TARP. And we would meet every Friday. And I never had any exposure to public markets, private markets, or, or never took an econ class. But I fell in love with this process of analyzing companies, understanding corporate finance, macro and microeconomics, just how businesses work. And that's what this little investment club unlocked, right? We got our E-Trade cards. I think my first stock pitch was Citibank at, in March of 2009 for roughly a dollar per share because I didn't think oh, wow. I had looked, I had poured through their balance sheet and was like, I, there's no way the government lets Citi fail and the business seems strong. I'll put $1,000 into Citibank and it turned into $10,000 immediately. I was like, oh, this investing thing is so easy. You just buy cheap stocks and they go up. And that really set the hook for me because I loved not necessarily the making money, but just learning and understanding markets and business and finance was just all so exciting to me. So I, from there, I scrapped medical school, went to work at a VC fund in Maryland, got an unpaid internship, basically getting lunches for the first six months. I was like the Rudy of private equity, just kind of out hustled everybody <laughs> until they I was taking macroeconomic classes at the US Department of Agriculture at night because I loved it. Right. They eventually gave me a full-time role, did some tech investing, taught myself to code, moved out to Google, did some more coding and some corporate policy and strategy. 2015, when Robinhood rolls out uh, along with Coinbase, my friends and I are still bantering all day, every day about markets. Right. And I have taught myself investing basically on the internet. And I had these two key insights where if I could make this, firstly, if I could make it more engaging and participatory to share knowledge with my friends, that would vastly help my ability to improve my investing performance, but also my just knowledge. And then second, anywhere that people talked about the stock market on the internet, generally immediately descended into chaos and pump and dumps and garbage right. and spam. And so I really wanted to build a platform that would amplify the knowledge of actual good investors. And hopefully get rid of a lot of the noise that's out there, you know, and all, all the message boards and forums that existed. The Reddit forums were one example of many. And that was sort of my key insight that led me to realize there's a massive new wave of retail investors that's emerging. And I could basically see the future as to how this was going to play out. I didn't know when. And so I left Google in 2017 to 
this little hacky side project I built for my friends to link our Robinhood accounts and talk about markets together and trade together, I realized there was a much larger opportunity. And so I left in 2017 to start Common Stock, and here we are today. Awesome. So you built Common Stock yourself, at least the first version. Correct. It was pretty hideous. <laughs> so going to Common Stock, I mean, you just set it up beautifully. That's a great founding story. And something that I think a lot of people trying to get into the markets the last few years have gone through, you know, just the friends group chat, trying to, you know, just source ideas. So what exactly is Common Stock? What is on the app and what are its key features? Yeah. So it is a both a web app and an iOS app right now. We're in beta and it's effectively a community and a social network that, as I said, amplifies the knowledge of the best investors where everybody has the ability to link their existing brokerage account. So you can spend two years building the most secure way to link a Robinhood, an E-Trade, a Fidelity, a TD Ameritrade, interactive broker account, you know, and, and every other brokerage that exists. And there is a feed of investment memos and real-time trade alerts from the best investors because we have their brokerage account linked. We can see, okay, this person actually knows what they're talking about and knows how to outperform the market over time. And any creator or investor can write their investment memo about why they bought Apple and break down the entire earnings report. And so that's the sort of single player mode of letting people learn from the best investors of the world. And then you can actually share that with your friends. There is this group chat aspect where you can talk to your friends, you get a real-time alert when my friend Jake buys Tesla. And there's a leaderboard that says, I can see who's performing the best in the group. All of this is to say, I can then look at somebody's profile. I can see by percentage only, so no dollar amounts are ever shared, but I can see where somebody has skin in the game, right? And I can see, does this person know what they're talking about? Are they outperforming the market? Should I actually listen to their analysis of Apple or Tesla? Do they have skin in the game, right? The hope is that we can eliminate a lot of the more you know, opportunistic, spammy, and unhealthy behavior, right? And bury a lot of the noise and focus purely on signal. And hopefully teach people and sort of make it more engaging and accessible to talk about public markets, but also private markets, and amplify the insights and the frameworks and the analyses of the best investors. Got it. And one quick follow-up, you only have to link one brokerage account, right? So in theory, I could have a Fidelity account with really only $100 and then you know a $1, $2, $5 allocated across all these stocks, but in a Schwab account have $50 million. But if I just link the Fidelity, that's the only thing that's going to be showing up in the app. Correct. And, and you actually, just to clarify, you don't have to link anything. Linking is totally optional. We are fully broker agnostic the platform is still very valuable. Even if you don't want to link a brokerage, you can still consume and read through the investment memos that people write. And as you just said, right, you don't have to link your entire retirement fund if you don't want to. Our hope is for people to join the community and we will earn your trust. We do have people linking $50 million portfolios, $100 million <laughs> portfolios, which is pretty amazing to see. Yeah. Um, we're closing in on We've had hundreds of millions of dollars linked to the platform in the last few weeks alone. So the goal, and you know, I think actually to what you just said, that the real value of being broker agnostic here is that we can attract the supply side of knowledge 
and some of the more experienced sort of best investors to the platform. So I have, in full transparency, I did download the app about a month ago. I love it. I haven't linked anything yet. I can't promise that I'll be putting 50 million in just yet, maybe someday. But I did notice, I mean, you have some users writing absolutely awesome memos with industry insights, fundamentals, technical analysis, everything, and all different types of assets. How did you get these super users, so to say, on the platform? Was it just totally voluntary? Were you reaching out to them and telling them that this was just a great platform to use or or something else? I think one of the key insights that I've had in this process, we haven't done, you know, this is all voluntary, right? It's all completely organic. This is a network effects driven business. The key insight that I've had is that there are amazingly intelligent people out there on Twitter and Reddit and you know every community that exists. And one of the issues that they've had is being drowned out by some of the louder voices that are more focused on entertainment. And so all that we've done is given them a platform to more clearly share their insights and their analysis and reward and incentivize the knowledge of the best investors, right? And that's where we give them, you know, there are a lot of subtle cues in the network that make this interesting to them organically, right? The idea of, it's not about the sheer number of followers that you have, but it's about the value of the followers you have, right? And so this aligns incentives for us where these creators, we'll call them, want to build a very valuable following. And it's the total aggregate amount of portfolios that follow somebody, right? I think I just crossed $200 million following me. And I don't even have time to share valuable insights. But that for the creator class, what gets them excited about this organically is they're already doing this across Substack and Twitter and Reddit. And they're manually uploading maybe their portfolio into a Google Sheet. We are automating this, making it more secure, And we're giving them a way to build even stronger trust and transparency with their subscribers, their followers, by saying, we're going to validate that you actually do what you say you do and your performance and make it a lot easier for you to share more transparently, and which they've all pretty uniformly loved. It's been amazing to see. Yeah, that can definitely be a problem. I mean, I've had phases in my life where I've followed investor influencers and people like Will Mead come to mind where it seems like the guy just never misses. And not to make any unfounded accusations, but there's just no way to verify these folks. And on the creator economy, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's booming. The success of Substacks, Patreon, and now non-fungible tokens has just been remarkable. So the trends are in the right place. And you have the network effects building every day. So this is an incredible advantage and moving forward as it continues to develop. You don't have investing capability on the app yet, but where do you see the opportunity to monetize moving forward? We have a few different options at our disposal, which I can't sort of reveal in too much detail. We need to keep our cards a little bit close to the chest. Oh, almost but had you. The idea, the idea is that I think my five or 10 year horizon is, and I know this is probably overused, but to build the Bloomberg terminal for retail investors, right? And, you know, as a historian of this space in Bloomberg, there's a lot that we have that either brokerages or other platforms aren't able to do, right? Because we are not a custodian. We are able to align incentives pretty, our number one priority is ensuring aligned incentives with users, right? And so 
That can be anything from letting people subscribe to some of these creators, letting them monetize their following is one of the somewhat obvious monetization approaches where we want to empower creators to build their business on top of common stock. And if they're already doing this on Twitter or Substack or Reddit by cobbling together different tools, there is a large opportunity for us to make this a lot more seamless all in one place. And that that's more exciting because, frankly, we get to let creators participate in the upside of the knowledge that they impart and right. the value that, that they create. One of the things that I don't think anybody understood until this week maybe was the sheer force and the sheer power of the retail investor. And common stock exists to harness that energy in a healthy and constructive way. And if we can get you know, the 10 billions, hundreds of billions of dollars linked to common stock, then, you know, if we can't monetize that, then we have bigger problems. <laughs> Absolutely. So what you're getting at is a managerial question now, if you're not going to be able to monetize it. So on that topic, how did you go about building your team? And what advice do you have for other founders trying to make these hiring decisions, especially in the early stages? I think in the earliest stages, the number one thing that I look for is side projects. I think the single greatest indicator of, especially because we're primarily engineering right now, but even across design and product, do you have a side project, ideally orthogonal to this space, but you know it could be anything. If you are so excited about investing or markets or building that in your free time, you create something like this, all we have to do is say, hey, come join Common Stock and we'll pay you to do what you were already doing for fun. And that has been the most remarkably successful hiring heuristic for me is all of these across every different area, engineers and designers who have built something in the space, then just bring all of that passion and excitement to Common Stock and are able to build for themselves. They're able to build a product that users are obsessed with. And we create this almost because of that deep empathy for the end user, it would be the second thing that I think is hypercritical is this empathy for your user. If you have passion and empathy for this space, you'll be able to build something like we have that creates almost a cult-like community. That's awesome. It's really great advice. And I think traditionally, so many corporations, et cetera, tend to issue the side project and try to stifle it and really weaponizing it. And now that all of this is out to play on the internet. You can find it so easily. That's a great hiring strategy. So in addition to your management team, you, of course, also have to have investors. Common stocks investors include Social Capital, Floodgate, and Wharton FinTech fan favorite, Frank Rotman of QED. And so they invested about $10 million in your company last year. How tough was the fundraise process? I think this was during COVID. And what did you learn that you'd like to share with our listeners? The fundraise process, the startup process in general, and fundraising is a key part of that, is has its ups and downs where sometimes things feel like a walk in the park. Sometimes it feels like you're just getting rejected for months on end. And I've experienced both with healthy doses. And you kind of have to modulate this sort of every 30 seconds going from, I'm going to be a billionaire, I'm going to be wildly successful, to I'm an idiot and I have no idea what I'm doing. and Frank Social Capital was actually the first institutional money back in 2017. Kent Goldman at Upside was also very instrumental in that early round, getting this off the ground. And then Mike Maples at Floodgate, Frank Rotman at QED led our 
what I would call a power seed or seed investment to build the current version of the product. And I did this all in stages and sequences to sort of prove one thing at each step of the way so that I could go to them with a story. And at the end of the day, I think most people, I think I'm very good at fundraising. Most people and founders feel like they have to sort of sell somebody and they're like pitching somebody. What I've found is the most effective way to do this is just tell your story and say, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm seeing. What do you think, right? What am I missing? And this collaborative approach, once you get people collaborating with you and say, help me build this, here's the evidence of this market. And I would love your help building this. Like, what do you, and start jamming and brainstorming on product and features. That is an invaluable fundraising. Once you can do that, you get, once I got Frank on board, like brainstorming on all the different fintech opportunities here, that's when you, you know you have a really good investor hooked and they get excited about building this with you. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, Frank is as good as it gets. I've exchanged emails with him a few times, you know, through the podcast on various topics. And once he gets going, it's just floods of insight. So I'm sure having him on your team is awesome. So I have to discuss kind of in the final section of the episode, the the giant gorilla in the room, which is GameStop and Robinhood. You can't talk about retail investing right now without kind of covering those topics. I did see on Twitter that you actually defended brokers and clearers. So what are people missing? Because everybody's very quick to just blame Robinhood, Citadel, have nefarious activity. And was anyone really in the wrong here? So the last two weeks have been wild. Yeah. Let me just clarify. We're recording this episode February 8th. So we're just (laughs) in the wake of all of this chaos. The dust is, I think, maybe settling, but not quite yet. You know, it's interesting. And I stop me if I start ranting or rambling, but I've known since I saw Robin Hood's first sort of press release almost half a decade ago, right? I've known it was almost like the matrix when sort of the walls fall down, you can see like the green numbers. And I was like, it's just so clear how this is going to play out. I don't know how or when. I was poking around a lot of these forums and subreddits trying to teach myself investing. And I could see this growing world of retail investor it's from it's everything from the boggleheads and the value investor clubs where you're really in the Yahoo message board forums to the sub investing subreddits, the stock market subreddits, and then the entertainment subreddits like Wall Street Bets, right? And everything in between. A lot of these are the same people participating both in the knowledge side, but also the entertainment side. The key insight that I had was Robinhood has done this amazing thing. In, and I know it's overused, democratizing access to capital markets. It is such a great net positive for the world. And in my opinion, there's no question about that. The Certainly, as this retail market grows, we do need to add some guardrails. And if Robinhood is, and the other brokerages have successfully democratized access to investing, Common Stock exists to democratize access to quality investing knowledge. And that's been my biggest takeaway over the past two weeks is so many people just don't know the boring mechanics of the market, You know, the underlying settlement period, how clearinghouses work, how payment for order flow. This is, I think, a great opportunity, a great teaching opportunity for everybody to say, hey, payment for order flow isn't necessarily a bad thing. It definitely warrants a larger discussion around best execution and routing. Like No question we have now brought all these conversations to the fore, which is a very good thing. And it's an opportunity to explain settlement periods and why they exist, to explain payment for order flow 
everyone has to keep in mind, partially responsible for this democratized investing access, right? And it's a great thing because it took prices down from back in my E-Trade days, paying $12 per trade to cents per trade. Now, again, there's a larger discussion about making the communication of all this more upfront, making it more clear what people are paying. I hesitate and I worry about people having a gut reaction and moving back towards a pay per trade sort of commission structure, which is actually going to be more expensive and almost undemocratized investing. And so that's where I think my big takeaway from the past week is I, I almost sort of knew that at some point retail was going to discover its purchasing power, right? And the, the weight, you know, I think there's a narrative that's been told very commonly that it's a lot of 18 year olds in their parents' basement. But what we see at Common Stock is very counter to that. These are very real investors with real brokerage accounts and doing thoughtful analysis, trying to improve. And this is like my biggest takeaway is that the vast majority of value creation in investing comes not from sort of the nominal increase in your dollar amount, but in your exposure to how markets work, how businesses function, corporate finance, macro and microeconomics, et cetera. And if a lot of new participants come into the market and are getting better exposure to those fundamental aspects of capital markets, I think that's a net positive. This is a huge opportunity to ensure that we harness that energy in constructive and healthy ways and help educate people about all of this. Yeah, I completely agree. This is such a turning point for the kind of retail investor movement. And there is just such a misconception about it. Everyone that I talk to, I think above the age of 35, just immediately goes to, like you said, the 19-year-old trading GameStop in the basement. And it's just not true. And I think moving forward, there's just a huge opportunity for companies like Common Stock, like Public, to name another one, where there's such an emphasis on community, some education, crowdsourcing ideas, and, and thoughtfulness. So with that, you've entered the final round of the episode, David. It's the rapid fire round. We've got about 10 questions for you, 10 second answer, Max. Are you ready? I'll try, yes. All right. First question, investing hero. Oh my gosh. I, there's so many. I mean, Bill Ackman has been one of ones that I think is really impressive. Actually, one of the, my first investing heroes were the people at Renaissance Technology who started using data to analyze trends. So I'll go with Peter Brown as one of my earliest investing heroes. Love that one. Not as commonly stated as a lot of others. All right. Uh, How about FinTech hero? FinTech hero, probably have to say Frank Rotman. Great choice. What is in your portfolio, if you can share? My portfolio, which is on Common Stock, anybody can go follow me, (laughs) is I bought Tesla at IPO. I bought Zoom at IPO. I bought Bitcoin early and Peloton <laughs> and Nike. And I basically can just feel out the trends of the retail investor. And those are the things that I bought and that's been treating me pretty well. Okay. So I need to follow you is what I'm understanding. And I'm also understanding maybe you didn't need to go raise that seed money. If you were in- <laughs> I didn't buy nearly enough Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> None of us did, it seems. All right. Well, that's a lot of winners. How about some pretty notorious losers that you've had over the last decade? My most notorious loser is also Bitcoin because I made the most standard mistake <laughs> of all time and I doubled down at the top and yep. then I sold everything back at the bottom. This was in the 2017 or 18 right. run up. So that's probably my biggest loser. It sounds familiar. I think I went through a similar thing that paper hands is what I learned they're called. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
All right. How about favorite common stock user? Nathan Warden is our first user ever. He kind of accidentally hacked into the platform and has become almost this, he's not on our team. He's this sort of de facto community organizer and is the most amazing user, power user, sort of evangelist ever. And I hope every consumer startup could find some user as amazing as Nathan. That's awesome. All right. How about your dream common stock user? And don't say Musk. Is Chamath on it? I don't think Chamath is. Chamath's not on it yet. My dream common stock user might have to be Mark Cuban. Oh, that's a good one. I think he has a really interesting insight into all of this space, public and private markets. All right. Almost done. So how about advice to a 23-year-old who just got a solid paying job no student debt, and has some money to start kind of deploying, saving, and investing. What advice do you give? I don't want to give any specific advice, keep myself out of hot water. But at that age, what I think is important is start putting money towards retirement and in a 401k. But I think it also is important to allocate 5 or 10% to single name stocks so that you have skin in the game and are now incentivized to learn how these companies work, read their quarterly reports, Talk about them with your friends. It's healthy to have a little bit of skin in the game in terms of Tesla. So you can talk about it at a dinner party and say, I just read Mm -hmm. their earnings report and now I understand how automobile companies work. Great. And then final question, best squash memory? Would have to be my freshman year winning the national championship. And I was a, as a freshman, all the seniors were treating me as like their, I guess they were gently welcoming me to the celebration. And I got my nickname Shampoo, and that stuck with me for my entire career. And I will discuss the actual etymology of the nickname another time with you. (laughs) Maybe I'll just have to stop hitting record and I can hear the story. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, David, it was great to have you on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. There's some great insight in here. I'm really excited to get this out to our listeners, and it's as timely of an episode as ever, and hopefully it ages well, because I'm excited to see where Common Stock goes. Likely, uh, Ryan, fantastic chatting. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zaug. Thank you.